we are back with the Running Lifestyle Podcast. And we are here with Mr. Nitschke. Did I say that right? That's, yes, spot on. Very well Perfect. done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so on the Running Lifestyle Culture Podcast, um, we always get the guests to uh, give us an intro, who they are, where they are, and um, yeah, just a bit of a background. So... I'll yep. hand it over to you. Uh, well, my, my name's uh, Michael Nitschke. Uh, I am I'm based in Adelaide in South Australia, and uh, I'm a, a sports podiatrist. Um, so I know for those who've listened to your podcast previously, uh, Ian described podiatry uh, really, really well, so I don't think I need to re-describe no. it. But um, I've been working as a podiatrist for like 15 years, and um, I fell into the profession just um, because of uh, being a runner most of my whole life. Like I sort of started athletics um you know, quite well-organized training at the age of 13. And I think uh, just like anyone else, uh, an interest in footwear and interest in, um, you know, improving your performance sort of led me to, um, you know, having an interest in lower limb mechanics and injury risk, etc. So, yeah, in 2020, I'm yeah, 15 years a podiatrist and about 20 years a runner or 20 plus years a runner. So that's, um, that's me. Nice. And um, so we're, today we're going to kind of, we're going to delve deep into your running simply because you've got yeah. a, a breadth and, and history. So let's let's start off with, I think all runners can relate. What do you do on the tough days? What happens? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've been running for 20 odd years now. Like, I think what happens is you probably appreciate the tough days and, and the easy days a bit differently to when you first start. So when I was younger, a hard day, I'd probably, you know, dwell on a bit more. So whether I was, um, you know, battling injury or whether I was battling a lack of performance, um, you'd really dwell on it. But um, after 20 years of running, you realize it's part and parcel, it's part of the cycle of running. And um, I think probably um, the way that I organize my training now at 35 years of age is, you know, a couple of days a week, I try and put aside to try and work quite hard. And the rest, I sort of, um, I don't, you know, I'm not too hard on myself. I try and make things, uh, you know, relatively free going. I sort of run a lot more to feel on those days. But um, if I can sort of tick off, you know, one to two hard quality sessions per week, uh, I know that I'm probably um, in the right direction. So um, whereas when I was younger, I think perhaps maybe every day ended up being sort of, you know, very important. But on the big scheme of things, um, sometimes that led to probably me pushing a bit harder each day or probably too many hard days throughout a week. So yeah, so I think some days I'm tired. I appreciate them now because I just I generally look forward to an easier day. <laughs> <laughs> and and you have a newborn. We do, yes, uh, seven year old, seven seven week year old, uh, so uh, Zara, and um, she's a healthy young girl, and uh, my wife's doing really well, and we've just thrown her into the mix. And um, to be honest, you know, while it takes up a bit more time, I think the time that's disappeared have been things that you probably don't do a lot in so for example maybe watching sitcoms or you know scrolling on social media that times just sort of disappeared and i've been able to maintain my work lifestyle and and, and my running definitely has like dropped in terms of duration um in terms of yeah. like running exposure like probably last year i may have ran an average of sort of 10 to 11 hours per week so closer to a volume of 110 sort of case a week and this year the focus is um sort of gravitating back towards the shorter events um uh, while last year was the marathon, this year's back towards sort of the events. I probably probably a, probably a bit better at like the fifteen hundred through to the five k. Yeah, I don't probably have to do quite as much duration of training um, compared to what I did for the marathon. So it um, allows me to be less sort of tired throughout the day to um, 
to manage family and, and work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But do do you use any kind of like what's what's your strategy on a tough day? Do you kind of like get the run out of the way at the beginning of the day, and you're like, I'm set, I'm set up now, or what's what's your what your thought processes on you know? Yeah planning and strategizing probably originally i probably definitely did that i reckon get it out of the way in the morning but i think now um um you know i sort of give my wife a bit of time off in the morning i look after zara and so it's actually it's actually going the other way i sort of am um, waiting for the end of the day to get my run done after my work and things now but um which makes me really look forward to it yeah i have probably haven't in terms of uh, really hard days um like that i'm struggling I, i don't I don't really perceptually find many hard days. If I'm really sore or really tired, for example, I still enjoy getting out for 30, 40 minutes, um, you know, even if I feel like it may not be that beneficial. Um, phys- yeah. Physiologically, I still think there's a lot of psychological benefit to getting out for 30, you know, 30, 40 minutes of low intensity. So I still put, I probably put more value on it now. When I was younger, I probably, if I knew I only had 30 minute jog and I was tired, I'd probably just give it a miss because I didn't put value into it. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So there you go, guys. Anyone listening, even if you've got to go out for 30 minutes, nice and easy, nice and gentle, you should value it. Psychologically, it's a, it's a breakthrough. Um, it's, um, for me, I find that um, you do, you know, people find that it, unless it's a workout, you know, people say, unless it's a workout, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to motivate myself to, to get out there. And I think you've, we've highlighted a key point in terms of that psychological aspect, kind of getting over the hurdle of, um, that, that, that demotivation sometimes for an easy run. Definitely those days when you've got those hard workouts set and you rock up to, um, to, you know, to the club and you've got a hard workout set and you're not hundred percent motivated. I think if I've had a big stressful day, like I sort of try and reduce the stress in the run a little bit. So I'll like, um, you know, stick it in fourth gear sort of thing. If I've got, say, a, a pretty, you know, regular set, might be eight by one K or six by one K. And uh, normally I try and run them at about 10 K pace, so sort of three or five pace if I can. I'll, I'll cut myself a bit of slack and I'll, I'll, I might run close to three, three ten pace. And um, so like closer to sort of more, you know, more half marathon pace or whatever and, and realize there's still good benefit in physiology to doing it. But uh, big stressful day at work. Sometimes I'll balance it by de-stressing the run a, t- a touch as well nice okay cool um so you're you're training at the moment uh yep yep i'm back into uh six days a week of training and uh it's been pretty consistent um obviously we chatted just before we haven't truly been um affected the same way other places have in australia so um uh, being part of a running group here in Adelaide, the Adelaide Harriers, um we've actually been able to maintain small groups of running throughout the whole period of the COVID. um um, the COVID period from March onwards, um, and we're back now to groups of um, you know, up to like 50, 60 runners at the club at one time now, which is fantastic. So um, yeah, so we've been pushing through the whole winter, and um, if anything, you know what athletics is like. Um, <laughs> people probably utilise this sort of time where there's no organised sports, but running, you know, rather than taking time off what you can in team sports because you can't play, there's nowhere to hide in athletics. So if you're not fit <laughs> by the time you come back. Um, you're not in shape so people know more training areas yeah. this time people think oh this is my window of opportunity to uh to, to make some inroads and so try and you know reduce risk of overtraining probably and, and you know overuse injuries probably more of a key feature in this block of COVID to be honest so, yeah. as opposed to underdoing it yeah what and and what keeps you getting out for more you know because you've been training for how long how many years now did you say just to remind the public the, the listeners about, about 
about 20, 20 odd years now. Yeah. I think I started uh, a much better sprinter and uh, definitely preferred sprinting. Like I, I never was a great sprinter, but um, I got down to um, the 11 O's and, um, and snuck under 22 seconds for the 200 when I was a younger runner. But um, each year sort of, um, I think as you get a bit older, I think handling the volume became a bit easier and the intensity became a bit, whether it was motivation or whether it was just more um, physiological, like I had, you, you start getting to later 20s and tendinopathies are quite common in the, the high dose of um, intensity on the track. So, but moving to the marathon, I could handle the volume quite well without getting sort of the lower leg um, injuries. And so I gravitated to longer distance running the past three to four years. And that's probably been enough motivator in itself to be able to keep going. Yeah. Because I can collect, I can collect PVs over the, the, the half or the 10K onwards. I, th- I think I'm probably not going to get my PBs for the um, the 800 and the 1500 now at 35. Um, the 1500s like right on edge when I'm ran 356 for that. I think that's probably probably gettable if I get the right race and I get myself in the right condition. So I think uh, I think I'll have a crack at some of those shorter events again. I know as I get older, it's going to get no easier, and it might be too difficult this year anyway. But I think um, I think 20 years of running, if you're still doing it. And uh, you're involved in the club. It almost it's almost habit at this stage. Yeah. It's sort of not. <laughs> it's so, like a, it's, it's your social interaction. It's um, your lifestyle. It's yeah. So that's what keeps me coming back. I think it's I think it's because um you know you you most of the, my things in my life will gravitate around it. Like my work gravitates around it, and my 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 social network. So I, I like to think I'd be doing it twenty years from now, but um, obviously just not um, not as organised perhaps. I bet you will. I bet you will. I get that's why this this podcast is called Running Lifestyle Culture because we find that it's so so deeply intertwined. So, um, what at the moment do you um, think you'd be doing if you weren't running? So, if you weren't running right now um, in your spare time, what do you think you'd be doing? That's a good question. Um, in, when I was younger, I did love. Um, you know, all other sorts of sports like, you know, uh, organized basketball and, and, and football, Aussie rules football here as well. What, what, what drove me to athletics is how much, you know, you had so much control over it individually. Um, so you can you know, control how much work you can put in and that usually gives you a good outcome. So I do like individual sports. So I'd probably be doing something perhaps like cycling. Um, cycling yeah. is much more time consuming though. So, um, you know, whereas you can collect 10 hours a week and get 100K or 120Ks of running out, you know, to, to be the equivalent sort of cyclist, you might be cycling 20 to 25 hours a week to, and uh, I guess owning a, um, or being a partner in a sports medicine facility, <laughs> um, 25 hours is hard to come by. Yeah. So running is really good, really, really good sport to fit into, um, uh, into you know, being a business owner as well. But um, maybe research. Um, mm. I'd probably spend more time into more uh, clinical type research. Yeah. Uh, but once again, that seems to be a little bit, derived from my running as well so i think perhaps uh yeah perhaps without running i i don't even know to be honest that's the first time someone's asked me that it's, it's an interesting <laughs> question right because you think to yourself like it takes up uh, a large part of probably um yeah your lifestyle and and, it, and it's quite interesting what would happen if you converted well, those hours to well, something well, else what would, what would you be doing um i i definitely think i'd probably would love to get involved with with research as well actually um i think that would be really interesting um and uh, yeah I'm, I'm not sure i, I yeah i don't think i don't know 
I don't know. It's a very it's a running running is just so so deeply intertwined in in kind of everything you do, like day in day out. That yeah, it's it's a very strange one. Well, the um, I'm doing part time research at the Adelaide University, and my supervisor, he's um from the UK originally. He was a, a really good four and a bit hurdler, and uh, but he's he actually runs at our running club now as well, and he still yeah. manages. He's more volume than me. He's about 110 k's a week of running. <laughs> nice. And he's, uh, he's he's associate professor and two kids, and so. It's, a, it's amazing that even my um, professor at university has an association to the running group that I'm with. So um, it's just, I think without running, I think my connections would all be, you know, completely detached. I yeah. have no idea what I'd be doing. Yeah, it's, it is such a big part. But um, I guess why we keep coming back for more, I guess. Um, That's right. So injuries. We know people get injuries. People get a lot of injuries. I get a lot of DMs talking about injuries. So... Let's break down a few injuries, maybe. Have, have, which injuries have you had? Uh, I think when I was younger, the, the ones that I had probably the most often were traditional, like the most common that you'll see, like medial tibial stress syndrome. Um, and, you know, even I've gone back, I've got a lot of my old diaries, even when I was 15, 16, where I used to write down in my columns diaries and stuff, sort of what I was training. Yeah. You know, I might have like three to four interval sessions per week. Uh, wow. I think, wow, if I, if, I, if I did that now, like... Um, I definitely have shit pains to do. Um, just simple things like, I guess, not understanding the concept of, you know, a big stress on the body and allowing the adaption time was probably things that I think got me really interested in running. But um, yeah, medial tibial stress. And it got to the point, I think, probably year 11 or year 12, um, I had a, a bit of a tibial stress fracture. Um, so probably the upper end of the continuum of medial tibial stress and missed about four to six weeks. That's probably, that's probably the worst one I had when I was younger. And then probably in my later track career, um, I did a lot of the professional, we call it the professional running. Um, the professional running in Australia is sort of like, how do I equivalent it? It's, it's like handicap running. In the UK, they've got events in Scotland, like the Powderful Gift, you might have seen. Yeah. And it's like the Highland Games, and they'll have the running events there. And that's quite a big circuit here in, in Australia. So we've got events like the Stool Gift, which the winner of the sprint wins $40,000. And, and um, wow. I can probably racing a lot on that circuit from 2005 to 2010, I had lots of sort of Achilles tendinopathy, just traditionally racing a lot, a lot of high intensity work and volumes were quite low. So more like 40, 50 K weeks and uh, my 400s and, and 200 races and 800 races were all pretty solid. But um, I think maybe when you got into the guts of the season with Achilles tendinopathy, if you bring it into the start of the season, it's very tough to be able to run track and be able to get rid of it during the season. You almost need to just plan for the time off. Um, Whereas I guess going to the marathon, I actually didn't have any issues with Achilles or calf or lower leg injuries at all. Um, but funnily enough, off the back of my second marathon, the Gold Coast, I developed um, not, not a traditional distance runners probably injury compared to say soccer, but a bit of osteitis pubis. And um, you probably oh, wow. deal with that a lot more clinically yeah. than what I do. But um, it, funnily enough, like it was definitely very irritating, um, and I still got it a little bit. Um, but it definitely um, dropped my volume. So my volume dropped from more like 110 to more like 70, 80 k's. It was provoked by typical deceleration, so going down hills or um, or accelerating from the get go. So a few of those things I sort of disappeared. But they, it's sort of you know I haven't stopped running. Um, I've done a bit of strength work in the background, and I've been able to manage about eighty percent of load, and it's still getting better. So it's still going away if that makes sense. So good stuff. Um, so that's actually it's been a frustrating injury because it won't go. But obviously I haven't stopped running, and I think most of the advice is to take a period of time and not. You know, maybe not do the provocative or the irritant to it, but um, I find it doesn't stop me from running. I just find it just irritates me from really long durations. 
Cool. Um, just for people who don't know what some of those conditions are, let's just break them down. So medial t- tibial stress syndrome, people will, you know, everybody listening might know it as shin splints. Um, and Achilles tendinopathy, uh, so you may know it or have heard of it as Achilles tendonitis, but we don't call it that anymore um, because there's changes in the way that the cells are, are reacting to, to load and the way that the body is reacting to your running. So that's the reason why we call it a tendinopathy. Um, and lastly, osteitis pubis is um, basically a central bone um, at the bottom of your abdomen and um, your muscles on the inside of your legs, they connect to that bone and you can get some irritation of that bone just to give you guys a insight of those three conditions. Um, so S and C, do you do a lot or how, what's your kind of, do you think That's that, do you think, question. do you think it has a, as it has a huge benefit? Here we go. Here's the big question. <laughs> do you think S and C um, can prevent you from getting injured or reduce your risk of injury? Do you know, when I was obviously running the shorter stuff, like I would spend um, three to four sessions per week in the gym and I would have like a bit of variation. Like historically, we would do things like body weight circuits, but we would do more compound lifts. So squats, clean, step ups, deadlifts. And I spent a lot more time. And the link between me running uh, better at the shorter distances and being stronger, it was definitely there. You know, it was almost part of your training. You know, lifting heavy was part of the strength or the neuromuscular conditioning required for speed. And I think as I've gravitated to the distance work, I've definitely like um, you know moved away from the strength. And I think maybe my bias is the fact that the more running I could handle in terms of distance, the better I got at distance running. And there was there's strong associations between collecting more volume and you know running better times over 10k plus. And I think having a good baseline of strength from the track work that I did set me up really well. But I will say that um, probably in the past two to three years, as I'm getting a bit older. The, the, the lack of sort of um, exposure to strength compared to what I've done historically probably might be the reason why I've had a couple um, issues with things like osteitis pubis, etc. So um, I still, I'm still in the gym probably twice a week and probably for 20, 30 minutes and I keep it pretty simple. Like I'll compound lift once a week, which will be, you know, squats, cleans, um, a deadlift um, and, you know, a box step up with weight. Uh, and then my second one will be a bit more dynamic. So it'll be more like running drills, plyometrics, et cetera. And um, just to keep, you know, to, to increase, my, so to improve my timing on the ground, basically. And I find when I do those things, some heel sprints at the end, I, I mean, I'm always close to being relatively fast. And I think, I think strength is a pretty arbitrary term, you know, like meaning that, you know, it's relative. Like I can go to the gym and not have clean, not, not have done much gym for three to four years and still be able to clean 70 kilos quite comfortably about my body weight. But I've got a large experience of that, so I don't know if it has a huge association to my um, performance and injury. Yeah. But I guess when I start to see a lot of my colleagues who are really good runners who do no strength work <laughs> <laughs> and sustain no injuries, you always you always see those um, individuals who probably are globally naturally a bit stronger. You know, I remember uh, training a lot with an 800 meter runner who was a carpenter, and his daily life was you know being quite you know you know a lot of lifting, a lot of yeah um, shifting. And so he was naturally a strong person. So he didn't actually do a lot of gym work, but um, for someone who might have an office job, for example, and um, a bit more stagnant throughout the day, you can understand the benefits of trying to, you know, recruit more fibers and tissues and, you know, build some better bone density and um, build some more tendon compliance as well through plyometrics. And uh, the benefits make sense to me. It's just, I think, uh, you know, when, say, for example, you're in an overload, like osteitis pubis, for example, I found that I could run quite comfortably 
and manage the symptoms with doing a lot of isometric type work. But if I would add the strength work in, it'll give me about a three to four day flare. And so the most important thing for me in running was still to keep running. So yeah. I would actually probably not be as specific to um, to doing strength work for my performance because I know that the running was more linked to my performance than the actual strength. So I gravitated away from it. But now that it's starting to clear up a bit, I've started to integrate it more. And um, and I guess perceptually, <laughs> I feel like I'm covering the ground a bit nicer. And I feel like... Um, you know, my, my shorter efforts are getting a bit easier as well. And I think that's the way it's associated to maybe recruiting more fibers and, you know, your neuromuscular ability starts to become uh, a bit better um, just by exposing yourself to fast compound lifts and, and mm. compound strength. Yeah, that, I think that that's that, that training, that well, that, that nervous system stimulus, so your nervous system, uh, for those listening out there, is, is generally the first... The first um, it's the first station that you get to when you're doing strength work. It's, you know, the nervous system's the first the first system that you tend to stimulate before we can ch- get changes in our muscle fibers. So, you know, I think that that kind of somebody somebody I spoke to somebody the other day and they were talking about kind of that 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 nuance and that new stimulus that somebody hasn't had before so if you're desk based and you've not really done any strength work and you you go into the gym and you get that new stimulus that the nervous system is like oh okay let's dial this up to (laughs) the levels that we're supposed to be at um you know and that that just dials in that nervous system as soon as you make a change and you increase you know your strength work i remember the the, the distinct change in 2006 when i went from just doing some body weight circuits to, to lifting some squats and yeah and doing more compound lifting and and how quickly my 200 time drop my 200 was always my guide because i was never a great out the blocks but um i remember dropping from about 23 and a three i think i was about that's about my standard sprint to the following year i ran 22.1 i think so wow um and i and obviously the biggest thing was i was just i was being able to hit the ground harder i had more confidence i probably had a little bit of hypertrophy but not a lot um, yeah. but yeah, that stimulus was huge, and I feel like I got the benefits back in 2006, and I'm um, I'm unable to probably get that same type of um, stimulus um, in you know 2020. Whereas um, most of my um, strength conditions in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, uh, this is trying to be a bit more for tissue tolerance as opposed to my performance, um, yeah. so I can handle more running basically. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a big I'm a big kind of uh, I like I like kind of trying to experiment and and i do wonder what would happen i'm going to give you a little nitto i'm going to give you a little kind of like try this um what would happen if you went really heavy two to three reps yes you'd have to stop running for a period of time three to four days but if you went really heavy over four weeks two to three reps because that would be a novel stimulus for you again you know um two to three reps two to three sets (laughs) I think I'd definitely start to be running a bit better over the shorter distances again, for yeah. sure. So, um, uh, you know, it's amazing. I think you, everyone has their sort of like their code and physiology. And if I go in the gym and I add some strength work, you know, I get quite good at it quickly. So I sort of, I think my cleans go straight from 60 out to 70 to 80 to 90. But if I remove my cardiovascular conditioning, I'm not, I don't think I've got the greatest cardiovascular pipe. So if I say take four weeks of jogging and easy running, yeah. my 5K drops from 15 to 17 minutes. So <laughs> I just don't have that gift. So um, I'm the other way around. Like I'm always pretty close to running a 50 second or, you know, yeah. sort of 400 anytime, any year. Um, so the strength work, I sort of maybe, and maybe that's because I did it historically as well. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, I feel like if I, if I remove strength, 
um, and I do more running, I'll be a better distance runner just from, you know, the personal experiences. But if I add the strength work back in and reduce my volume, I know I'll gravitate back to yeah. sort of being more of a quarter miler and, and um, I get you. Um, which, you know, you know, maybe that'd be better for my lifestyle and time as well. I'm not sure. But yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Um, so anyone listening, get in the gym, get that stimulus, helps you push the ground harder, gets you moving over the ground better. And um, we all want to run faster. Um, so let's do it. Next up, um, all the listeners out there, people I speak to on social media tend to, um, obviously with my kind of working relationship with Nike, they tend to talk to me about shoes. Um, now, maybe you could give us a bit of a breakdown. I'm going to go into your professional side here. Let's, uh, let's bring the clinician out. And um, what what's your what's your thought process around footwear and its relationship to injury risk? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good topic, and um, I guess the way that the the footwear marketing has evolved over the past three or four decades has definitely determined people's um, perceptions of what causes injury. And people always often relate footwear um, to a to a large cause of injury. And, I think um, if, you, if you're lucky enough to read any Erasmus Nielsen's work, one of our the best recent sort of epidemiological researchers, uh, um, he's based in uh, Denmark in Aarhus. He sort of talks a bit about sort of um, causal and non-causal associations, and we often find that the shoes that you use, you know, from day to day, they may influence the way you hit the ground, and they may influence, um, you know, the, the area that gets loaded, for example. But we know that shoes don't truly cause injury, but they'll be enough to be able to sort of maybe determine what gets injured, but not if you get injured. So the, the beauty of the footwear now in 2020, we have so many options to be able to use. You know, we've got we've got um, high stack shoes, we've got low drop shoes, so low drop shoes being not much of a heel raise to them. Um, so the back and the front are the same height off the ground. Um, we have shoes with high heel pitches, so a higher heel raise. We have low profile shoes or minimalistic shoes, which have you know minimal, the least amount of midsole possible. And um, we have still traditional shoes that sort of are based around categories that are slowly dying away, like neutral stability and motion control. Mm. Um, but because we have so many shoes now in the market, I, I guess people need to understand that these shoes are quite useful in being able to manipulate the type of loads that go through your lower limb. And so if you get your shoe selections correct for your purpose, you can probably handle more dose of running. And I think that's the biggest thing to take away is that if you find the shoe that works best for you, a lot of the time you can handle more dose of running. The issue is trying to find the shoe that works best for you doesn't seem to be built on a biomechanical measure. It doesn't seem to be very objective at all. It seems to be more subjective. So meaning even things like comfort, people say that you pick a comfortable shoe, you might be less risk of injury or you may perform a bit better. I think we probably actually have evidence suggesting probably on the contrary to that as well. So we know that people might wear shoes that are less comfortable but still perform really well in them. So the footwear industry is a minefield, but um, I think the biggest takeaway is you always pick a shoe for the purpose first, yeah, and then you pick it, yeah, and then you pick it for injury risk second, um, or not second, but definitely as a secondary thought. So you know, if you've been running for many many years uh, and you're um, not a novice anymore you're probably quite intuitive and you sort of perceptually can pick the shoe that you need for that type of run. And um, I was funny, we've got a, a podcast where I speak to two guys, one's a podiatrist and one's a, owns, he's owns a, shoe, a shoe retail shop in Ballarat. Um, he's a 2.14 marathon runner over, actually they're both 2.14 marathon runners. I'm the dud in the actual podcast. Wow. So, 
<laughs> and we talked a bit about how, you know, back in the day, a traditional racing flat was low profile and it was quite low stack. Um, and that's very hard to come by now. But the way you would load in those shoes compared to a high stack shoe feels perceptually quite different. But I used to wear low profile shoes or low stack shoes all the time for racing. And now I put them on at 35 years of age because I haven't worn them for three years. And I really battle with them. You know, yeah. I get sore calves. I'm not conditioned yeah. for them. And so unfortunately, um, while I had a history of wearing them, they're probably a small risk for me in a period of time until I readapt to them. <laughs> yeah. Same here. Same yeah. here. I used to wear the uh, uh, Nike Flyknits, my favorite shoe. Ran my first marathon oh, in them. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Fantastic. I used to train in them day and night, wouldn't wear anything else, and uh, ran a marathon and felt, well, apart from the last 3K, which is always <laughs> terrible for everybody, uh, I felt fine. Um, yeah, I can't wear low-profile shoes now. Um, it's just uh, the closest I get is probably... Um, a Pegasus, which um, yeah, it's it's not. And there's nothing compared. They've, they've jumped up in stack now as well. They've, the thirty six to thirty seven yeah. really lifted up the um that yeah. airbag and the four foot and higher stack. So I've actually gone back to a couple recently. I found that um, managing the osteotis pubis, um, like wearing a lower profile shoe loads the lower legs more. So I haven't been putting the brakes on as much. So a couple of shoes like the Fuel Cell Rebel, but even within the Nike range, I've got an old pair of Streaks and. Um, yeah. So the strength sixes, which actually yeah. have come out a few times recently. And I think I've found that while my calves have taken time to adapt, I've just, you know, done simple things. Like if I finish a, you know, a, a threshold session, I might finish with four 200s and just put the flats back on. Nice. And yeah, just try and distribute the load of the lower leg now just to try and, you know, start yeah. getting used to the summer season coming up. So. Really nice. I, I the, the Nike have got the gravity, which is probably the next like low profile, nothing, nothing, in, nothing in the soul. Um, but just for the listeners out there, so when you wear a low-profile shoe, you're, 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 the load and the forces tend to be um, absorbed and the work seems to be absorbed in your calf muscles. So that's the reason why you may want to wear um, low-profile shoes. So, uh, for instance, somebody has run his knee, patellofemoral joint pain, we, we change their load by putting them in, in low-profile shoes. Um, and then if you have Achilles pain, you might want to wear something like the new Pegasus or um, any of the any of the other brands out there which have a high stack. You could you could probably <laughs> you could probably uh, give us a few, Nita. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the high stack range is quite amazing now. And, and I mean, Nike have definitely um, you know grab, I mean their Alpha Fly, their Next Percent, even their Four Percent. You know. I've never been able to PB in the next percent. I've PB'd in, in the 4% multiple times. So, And I've been in better shape to wear the next percent as well. So I don't know <laughs> me a bit. So, um, yeah, so I, obviously, Socody have made equivalents now as well, like the Endorphin Pro and, and the Speed. But even New Balance have a couple now. So we, we know the field. Um, so New Balance have the RC Elite, which actually I've got a set today, and I'm looking forward to wearing them. They they are a bit lower. Um, they're definitely not high stacked, but... Um, yeah, so like you mentioned, I think it's good to know that you've got these attributes of shoes which you can use to actually offload tissue to keep someone collecting some running dose. And that's the magic. You know, if someone has an Achilles problem, you might do the opposite. You might put them into more shoe with a bit of a heel pitch to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that traditional like cycling of multiple pairs of shoes for the purpose of your running session ends up being a nice strategic way of you know, accommodating um, your training load. So there's no point waking up after a session of 10 200s on the track where you wore spikes and and then jogging in a pair of Zoom streaks the next day, you might want to try and change the load up and put a more traditional trainer on. So There you go, guys. Sore calves, wear a shoe with bigger stack. If 
you have a sore knee, uh, low profile shoes. Otherwise, you know, just get in contact with Nitro and I and we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll help you out. We'll help you out. Um, right. So I think that was a really nice kind of, yeah, overview of footwear and injury risk. And I think for me, I always get asked by, by, by really new runners, um, what do you think the best thing to do for, for running is? Just, just in a broad spectrum. There's no, you know, yeah. it yeah. doesn't have to be for injury risk, for performance. Mm-hmm. I always get yeah. asked, what, what should I be doing to become a better runner? What would you say? To, be, to become a better runner, a lot of the time is, and this sort of falls into that low management category, but I still think um, having a bit of a plan of sort of what you're trying to achieve for that week relative to your ability and I remember hearing um, Frank Gary and Pizzali talk a bit about, you know, the best way to probably monitor load is to probably see, you know, put down on paper what you're trying to achieve for that block of training and see how close you get to achieving it. Um, so right now, for example, like I organize my training around, um, you know, I'm trying to improve my 1500 through to 5K. So I want to have, um, you know, one or two high intensity type sessions in there, but I'm not quite aerobically that gifted. So I need to train sort of at the threshold, which is not too fast and not too easy, but in that sort of middle zone of running a fair bit. So I need to stay there for a period of time. But I guess knowing that I've had an injury history related to probably collecting a bit more too too higher intensity, I make sure I sort of uh, make sure my training doesn't have high monotony in it, meaning that the stress from day to day isn't the same. So organizing your training structure for the week ends up becoming, I think, the most vital way of becoming a sustainable runner. So um, if you're collecting a high-intensity running session one week, uh, one day, you might be planning to absorb that the next day or two days when you're 35 years of age <laughs> um, with, with easier running on the side. Because I know the easier running the next day, I might be able to go out and, and run, you know, five-minute K pace at 120 beats a minute. But I still know there's a good benefit to that. You know, I'm still collecting some physiology. I'm still collecting some, um, some of the ground. And I'm still developing, you know, attributes that will make me a better runner. But I'm also not overdoing it because the day before I might have ran, you know, a 20 minute hard threshold closer to 320 pace. And I even think this natural organization of training, while it sort of um, may reduce risk of, say, overtraining syndromes and, and fatigue, but it also probably does alter the actual mechanics and the loading rates from day to day. And I think that becomes an important, just like rotating shoes from day to day, you know, the intensity and the surface that you run on these types of features end up becoming nice variability that keep you collecting the duration and the dosage you require, um, but not overdo it. So, so I really think training organization and setting people's, um, I guess they continuum up. Like I like if a runner comes through the clinic, I like to get a bit of a guide of what they can do on an absolute setting. And the beauty of park run in 2020 is that everyone sort of has a park run time now. So you yeah. can sort of see what their absolute time is and, and I'll sort of, um, you know, speak to them about, you know, I might use a simple thing like the, the Daniels formula online, which is sort of, you know, he sort of has that. Yeah. Putting your 5K PB flat out and you work out what their estimated threshold is. And you'll just describe to them what their easy pace is probably suggested compared to what their fast paces are and create a nice, um, you know, if someone runs a 22-minute 5K, so that's about four fifteen sort of is that four thirty pace mm-hmm. and so their easy run might be closer to five fifteen pace and just trying to tell the patient there's a lot of value in running five fifteen pace for longer durations and sometimes there's magic in the duration of running as opposed to trying to run four fifteen pace every single day or four twenty pace every single day. Yeah. Which might create high monotony in training. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think that organization from that person's current ability ends up being a really big staple. That if you can do that for twelve 15, 16 weeks in a row, you go out and run your next park run and, you know, you run 21 minutes or 20 and a half minutes where well, you've earned this new, um, 
I guess, this new status where your easy runs will become organically faster and, and your faster sessions might have to become harder to improve a bit more. So, yeah, I think just training organization ends up being, I think, my key feature to improve your running. I like that. So just kind of creating almost, a, you know, a real... Yeah, we polar. We call it you know the Stephen Saylor work with polarization. So creating a, a real gap between how easy you run and how hard you run, rather than sometimes you, when you're when you're quite new to running, what what can happen we see is uh, that kind of consistency of pace. Uh, so if you're looking at somebody's graph, there'd be a flat line in terms of their pace. Um, I like like that. I like that a lot. Um, Hmm. training load we know is essential to keep you healthy um you know we can we can relate training load back to quite a lot of injuries so if you're listening and you're new to running just keep thinking about how much you're recovering how hard you're working and ensure that your easy runs are easy your hard runs are hard Hmm. i think that's a good way to end um before we end you've listened to other podcasts so you know what's coming we have a track of the podcast. So, what is your track going to be? Oh, um, oh, I was listening to some good stuff here on the way in as well. Maybe some. Um, <laughs> maybe we could have um, Metallica into Sandman. Metallica into Sandman. Okay, perfect. Okay. Yep. We'll we'll play uh, last at the at the end of the podcast. We'll play ten seconds of of Metallica. This has been the Running Lifestyle Culture Podcast. Nita, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you for for jumping on, and I hope your uh, running continues to uh, to move forward and you keep breaking those PBs. Um, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. You too. That's Metallica. That's what you're going to get. It's going to go in. So you go and listen to that track. I have been Manny. This has been the Running Lifestyle Culture Podcast. Coach Manny, out. Peace.